How you guys doing? Good. Right. Are you doing Discovery, what, fourth time this morning? We've had a lot of practice. How you guys doing? Good. Hey, okay, good. Hey, uh, my name's Tom Nelson. Uh, I am on the teaching team here at Discovery, and you know, every so often I get a microphone and I get to share from the scriptures. It's one of my favorite things to do, and I'm really thrilled to be up here today. Uh, I'm speaking on a topic that's very near and dear to me. And one thing, every time I'm up here I forget, youth, you are dismissed. Feel free to go with my good friend, Andrew Allen. Uh, he'll be leading you guys this morning. And for those of you who don't get to hang out with Andrew this morning, uh, and you're stuck with me, we do have Bibles for you. If you don't have a Bible of your own, um, we have some on the tables, kind of these communion tables, cabins there. Uh, if you don't own a Bible, you don't have a Bible, feel free to raise your hand. Uh, this is our gift to you. If you don't have your own Bible, take this home with you, put your name in it, Make it yours. Uh, again, this is our gift to you. We want everyone who comes to Discovery to be equipped and to have God's word in their hand. Uh, we are in this Advent series, as, as Kevin and Carly and Cohen kind of mentioned. Um, this is a season in which we are uh, looking forward, hopefully and expectantly, to the arrival of Christ and one of the kind of the sub the taglines of this series is putting Jesus back in Christmas. Now, every so often, uh, when this time runs around, rolls around each year, I hear Christians often, you know, bemoaning the fact that um, Christ has been taken out of Christmas, right? Jesus is no longer in Christmas. Uh, you know, if you're a Christian and someone comes to you and says, Happy Holidays, you think, well, do I rebuke them? Do I correct them? Um, And, and, you know, Jesus is the central figure of Christmas. We don't have Christmas without Christ. But, but I think on, on a much bigger scale, instead of bemoaning the fact that Jesus is no longer in Christmas, we also need to be attentive to the fact that at times, Christ isn't even in Christianity. That, that the reality is there's so much that we often do that we call Christian, which is pageantry, it's fanfare, it's tradition, but you look in the scripture and it has no bearing. Let's not be so quick to tell people we need to put Jesus back in Christmas while not first focusing on making sure that Christ, Jesus himself, is the center of our Christianity. The title for today's message is uh, Behold Your King. Maybe no more fitting a title for a Christmas message, behold your king. And, I, and I'm taking these words from an unlikely source. Right? Pontius Pilate, at the end of Jesus' life, he was a Roman prefect who was sitting over one of the trials of Jesus before he was crucified. Now, now Pontius Pilate didn't, in fact, think Jesus was guilty. He tried to release Jesus. He tried to tell the Jews, the high priest, that he didn't find any legal condition for Jesus to be put to death. But he was also coward. He gave in to the whims of the people and, and was afraid to go against the masses. And so he finally he washed his hands, but he told them in John 19, he tells the people and the high priests, behold your king. It says this, now it was the day of preparation for the Passover. It was about the sixth hour. And he said to the Jews, behold your king. So they cried out, away with him, that is away with Jesus. Away with him, crucify him. Pilate said to them, shall I crucify your king? The chief priests answered, we have no king but Caesar. 
even at the end of Jesus' life, people would look at him and say, I don't see anything kingly about him. I don't see anything priestly about him. We do have a Messiah coming, but it's definitely not this man. And yet the invitation that Pilate gave at the end of Jesus' life is fitting for us as we look at the beginning. Behold your king. Now, now we come here, and, and I know some of us have been here for years. Some of us maybe are here for the first time. We have a lot of different perceptions of who Jesus is. Uh, two weeks ago, I was actually sitting in the dentist's office for my semi-annual cleaning. And here I am waiting for my, my dental hygienist to come out and, and say my name. Uh, and next to me on the table is National Geographic, December 2017. And I see a familiar face on the cover. It looks like Jesus. And the title was something like, um, What Archaeology Says About the Real Jesus. And so, being a student of the Bible, I thought, oh, this ought to be rich. So I opened it up, and inside, inside there was this, this picture that I kind of awkwardly pulled my phone out, and the guy who's wearing the Nikes was looking at me. Um, but here are tons of traditional depictions of who the man Jesus Christ was. And I'll be honest, there's not a ton of continuity here. Some bearded, some not, mostly white, interesting. Um, the reality is there are a lot of different perceptions about who Jesus is, who he was. And so for today, I want to get back to the text. Let's see what the Bible says. Starting in Matthew 1. 18 to 23. Now the birth of Jesus Christ was as follows. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child by the Holy Spirit. And Joseph, her husband, being a righteous man and not wanting to disgrace her, planned to send her away secretly. But when he had considered this, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife, for the child who has been conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Now all this took place to fulfill what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall be with child and shall bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which translated means God with us. All right, so that's setting the stage. We're going to move now to Luke 2, another familiar text, verses 1 to 7. Now in those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that a census be taken of all the inhabited earth. This was the first census taken while Quirinius was governor of Syria. And everyone was on his way to register for the census, each to his own city. Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the city of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem because he was of the house and family of David, in order to register along with Mary, who was engaged to him and was with child. While they were there, the days were completed for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son, and she wrapped him in clothes and laid him in a manger, because there was no room for them in the inn. Familiar text for many of us. Now, I, I mentioned this before. I didn't grow up going to church. Uh, I, I became a Christian at the age of 18. And so, so much of what I understood about Christmas, about um, what it was about, about the traditions, about the stories, are things that I learned through Christmas carols, songs, 
through claymation Rudolph stories, through all sorts of popular media. And so when I would hear and, and read the Bible, I would almost always project what I understood from those areas onto the Christmas story. And, and as, I, as I read the text, as we look at Luke 2, I feel like the story that I've always pictured in my mind isn't necessarily the story that's depicted here, right? I always assume that they're traveling to Bethlehem, and it's like, you know, Mary is like, as they're entering town, Mary's practically giving birth, and there's this urgency, and what, we can't stay here, you know? Um, we have to go somewhere else. And, and the reality is, it says, right, in verse 6, while they were there, while they were in Bethlehem, I, I thought it was like, as they're coming into Bethlehem, you know, like, Jesus is being born. And the reality is, no, it just says, while they were there, maybe for a day, maybe they're, they're there for a week. It also, when it talks about the inn, verse 7, for me, I always thought, like, you know, Motel 6, We'll leave the light on for you. The reality is the inn, uh, kataluma is this Greek word. It just means a guest room most of the time. The reality is there wasn't room in, in the guest room or in guest rooms in these houses in Bethlehem. And this isn't surprising. If there is a census being taken, there are a lot of people who are traveling from all over back to the city of David, to Bethlehem. The population probably increased three or fourfold during this time. I also often thought that, that Jesus was born in a cave or in some sort of an animal stable. He was laid in a manger, a, probably a stone feeding trough. Um, at the same time, though, I've also realized that oftentimes these mangers were in structures that were built onto the house, just outside of the main common area. I've also always assumed that they were alone, that they were somehow in this almost like kind of idealistic cave and oh, there was just some animals there, but there was no one else there. And so much of what I understood about this birth scene doesn't necessarily conform to what the Bible says here. I don't even know if Jesus was born at night. We sing O Holy Night. We know that the shepherds were keeping their flock by night when the angel appeared. And so for me, this has been a long process of saying, well, what does the Bible say? And what do I just assume that it says? And for us as Christians, this is an exceptional practice for us to engage in. Because like, like I said, much of what we assume to be centered on Christ often isn't necessarily taken from the scriptures. Uh, in our living room, we have this kid's nativity set. Um, oftentimes, these things are really unhelpful for us when it comes to understanding what happened on that special day in Bethlehem. As, as I look at this, Here's what I notice. Glossy, clean, Caucasian. You know, I, this isn't very helpful as I, as I read the Bible, and maybe I shouldn't have this in our living room with our kids. This is not what it looked like. Where's the blood? You know, as I was opening up the box, the animal feces pieces didn't get included. Conspicuously, there's no sign of the afterbirth, right? There is, this is not what it looked like. Because of what was accomplished there in Bethlehem, right, we have the tendency to play the role of the revisionist. And we almost think about this scene in these almost, almost romantic, through this idealistic lens. 
The animals are even smiling. If you give birth and there's a camel smiling at you, you need to leave. This is not good. The whole thing wasn't attractive. It wasn't romantic. We tend to dismiss the, the terror, the urgency maybe, the calamity, the confusion of, of Mary being an unwed pregnant woman giving birth, the uncleanness ceremonially of the moment. It wasn't attractive. It wasn't cute and endearing. But it was glorious. And what happened had more weight and more importance on that day than anyone in Bethlehem could have possibly imagined. God himself was delivered to us as flesh and blood. As John says in chapter 1, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. We saw his glory, glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. And so you guys have your worship guides. There's some blanks in there. The first blank, how God accomplishes his purposes rarely conforms to our expectations and assumptions. And I would add, and often, is not even in line with our desires. How God accomplishes his purposes or rarely conforms to our expectations and assumptions. Here's a great case example. Um, about 11 years ago, I, I was a couple years out of college. I had, I had done my undergrad. Uh, I was working in a church down in San Luis Obispo. And the reality was I was lonely. I was working too much. Uh, I was lonely. I, uh, I wanted a wife. I wanted to meet someone. And I thought, how do I do that? I, I don't, I'm working too much. I'm not around people who... Um, it just doesn't feel like there's anybody. And so I felt kind of hopeless. I felt kind of lonely. And so I did anything that the thing that any guy would do uh, when he wants a wife, he's lonely, he's working, he feels isolated. I... I enrolled in an online seminary at a school about 2,000 miles away. <laughs> and yet it wasn't long after that that I met my wife. I always assumed that I would, I would meet my wife, we'd have this long friendship, and it would be me that pursued her and eventually worked up the courage to ask her out on a date and then propose to her. And it didn't work like that at all. Uh, instead, uh, through her aunt, who kind of introduced us. We were essentially set up. And then uh, through some correspondence on MySpace, uh, Nicole and I, we started dating, and we eventually got married in 2007. Praise God for MySpace. Said no one ever, or... Why are we clapping, guys? No one will ever say that again. The reality is God does accomplish his purposes often in ways that we don't expect or anticipate. You know, if, you, if you're reading the Bible with someone and you tell them, hey, start reading in the New Testament, and they open up to the book of Matthew, right, written by Levi the tax collector, they're going to start reading, and in the first 17 verses, by the time they get to verse 18, they're going to feel so defeated because you start reading in Matthew, and the first 17 verses are this long, drawn-out genealogy. 
It's names. So-and-so begat so-and-so, who gave birth to so-and-so, the descendant of so-and-so. And for many of us, if we've been there, we think, why is this included? Why is this in the Bible? This, this isn't what I was hoping for. It was included very specifically, very strategically by the author because those first 17 verses of Matthew's gospel lay out the fact that Jesus was a real man in a real place who were the descendants of real people, a couple of whom are of no, really of note. David was the king in Israel, Israel's greatest king. And God spoke to the prophet Nathan and told him to tell David that David would have a descendant who would have an everlasting throne, an eternal kingdom that would not perish. That one of David's descendants would fit this description. But Matthew goes further. He doesn't just connect Jesus to David. He connects Jesus all the way back to Abraham. Who in Genesis 12 and a number of other times throughout his life, God spoke to Abraham and said, you will have a descendant, one of your seed, who, through whom all the nations would be blessed. And it shouldn't surprise us as we begin to look at our Matthew text that right after Matthew does the exceptional work of connecting Jesus to the promises given to David and the promise given far earlier to Abraham, that the very next verse, Matthew 1.18, he starts talking about the birth of this descendant, the birth of this seed, the one through whom these promises would be fulfilled. And for us, looking back on the Old Testament, for those who lived in the various periods and phases of the Old Testament, we can look at it, and we have plenty of source material to say, no, God was absolutely not in control. We can look at the murder. We can look at the horrible kings. We can look at the genocide that we see. We can look at the captivities and the populations of Jews being taken away into exile. We can look at the lack of faith. We can look at the murder, the rape, the incest, the cannibalism that shows up in the Old Testament, and we can say, no, 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 no. God's purposes are not being accomplished here. At the same time, for those who were living in those times and for us who have eyes to see now, we can look back on the Old Testament texts and we can see and acknowledge, yes, those things absolutely happened but we can also see a thread of God's redemptive plan and his redemptive purpose being carried out even in the midst of acts and activities that we would never condone. God did not forego his promise to Abraham, to David, and to many others. And we see this thread, we see this hope, this redemptive plan of God continuing to be carried out through many different people. And last week, Jeff spoke on prophecy, and he listed all these different prophecies, these signposts along the way, giving evidence and light to the fact that, no, God had not abandoned his people, but he was working out his salvation on his terms, not on ours. A couple of these, about 700 years before Jesus, we read in Isaiah 7, Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign, Behold, a virgin will be with child and bear a son, and she will call his name Emmanuel. 
the Millers earlier read from Micah 5. But as for you, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, that word Ephrathah, in the Old Testament, especially in Genesis, um, Bethlehem is, is also known as Ephrath. There's actually two Bethlehems in your Bible. Bethlehem Ephrathah is, is a way of describing which of the two Bethlehems in the Bible they're talking about. And this is the Bethlehem in Judea. But as for you, Bethlehem Ephrathah, too little to be among the clans of Judah. From you, one will go forth for me to be ruler in Israel. His goings forth are from long ago, from the days of eternity. Therefore, he will give them up until the time when she who is in labor has borne a child. Then the remainder of his brethren will return to the sons of Israel, and he will arise and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God, and they will remain, because at that time he will be great to the ends of the earth. This one will be our peace, our shalom, the end of hostility. He will be our peace. Even in the details of Jesus' birth, we see that God was actively in control, coordinating circumstances so that these prophecies would come about. In, in, in Matthew 1, we see that Joseph, not wanting to disgrace Mary, her, his wife, planned to send her away. Joseph's plan was that my wife is pregnant, she's is out of wedlock, it's better for, for her, it's probably better for me socially to distance ourselves. Joseph's plan was to create space. Later on, Angel Lord says to Joseph, do not be afraid, take Mary as your wife. That wasn't his plan. In Luke 2, it says everyone was on his way to register for the census, each to his own city. Joseph didn't plan on there being a census. They had to go, they were compelled to go by the Roman Empire to go and be counted among his family. And it was while they were there, the days were completed for Mary to give birth. It's in verse 6. For all intents and purposes, according to the wisdom of men, Mary, uh, Jesus should have been born in Nazareth, where Joseph was living. If they had separated, Mary would have never have gone to Bethlehem. This clearly was not their plan. And as we're reminded over and over in the scriptures, Psalm 33, 10 and 11 says this, The Lord nullifies the counsel of the nations. He frustrates the plans of the people. The counsel of the Lord stands forever. The plans of his heart from generation to generation. This first bullet point, how God accomplishes his purposes, rarely conforms to our expectations and assumptions. But I will add this, and this is important. He always works exactly how he said he would. Just because it doesn't conform to our expectations and assumptions doesn't mean that he doesn't do exactly what he said he he would. Now, as I was working in the church, I used to be a junior high, uh, well, really a children's and youth pastor. And um, one of the questions around Christmas I would often ask our junior hires is, you know, if, if you were to, you know, have the resources that God had and the power, and, and you had to come into the world, how would you go about doing it? If you had to, you know, come in and, and burst onto the scene, how would you do it? And immediately after I asked the question, I regretted it. Because normally in a, in a Bible study, you know, sermon-type context, getting a junior hire to say anything is almost impossible. 
And yet, right when I ask the questions, hands shoot up, and they're thinking, well, there has to be lightning. There has, you know, and, and, and this, this five-minute-long exercise in hyperbole ensued in which, wait, I have all power. I can just show up however I want. So, you know, one of them's riding a dragon in, you know, uh, there's suns that are exploding, and there's just volcanoes, and, you know, the angels are singing, all this stuff. And I think, what am I, don't do this next year. I asked them, well, then where would you show up? Where would you, with this great display of grandeur and power, where would you come in? And of course, their answer is, well, there's lots of people, right? Uh, Metropolis, some, some big urban center, New York, Los Angeles, London, Paris. I want to be seen. I want to be heard. I want this to be a spectacle. If I have all power and I get to burst onto the scene, here's how I'm going to do it. Which leads to our next point. Jesus' birth in Bethlehem shouldn't make sense to us. It doesn't conform with how weighty a thing this is. You know, again, before I was a Christian, before I was reading the scriptures and enjoying and, and, and spending time with the Lord in the scriptures, my perception of Bethlehem was very different. I would hear about it all the time in these Christmas songs, and so I just thought, man, this must be like the happening place. This must be some, some major urban center where it was the birthplace of culture and all this stuff. And then I, I began to realize as I read the Bible and actually uh, studied this, Bethlehem's not that great of a place. There isn't a lot special to say about Bethlehem. It literally means, Bethlehem literally means house of bread or house of food. It's not like house of awesomeness or house of miracles or power. It's just house of bread. Which for you guys, as you're studying your Bible, this is a total aside, there's a lot of cities named Beth something. Beth literally means a house of. So if you're reading your Bible, you come across Beth Shemesh, house of the sun, Beth El, house of God. Bethlehem, house of bread, house of food. But what I come to understand is, is that Bethlehem isn't on any major road. It's not located on any major trade route. It's just a place that's about six miles south of Jerusalem. Unassuming, innocuous. I like to think of it as the winters of NorCal. You know, if you're, if you're hanging out with your friends in Southern County, California and you say something like, man, there is something really big happening in Northern California, you know, and you got to be there. It's amazing. People have been talking about it for ages. And they're like, oh, so it's like San Francisco or Sacramento? You're like, oh, it's winters. They're like, no, it's still fall, but no, that's the place. It's in winters. It wasn't a special place, but because of Jesus' arrival in backwater, no name, Bethlehem, we understand that there is no place, there's no time, or person that's uncongenial for God to work. And one of my favorite authors, Frederick Buechner, says it like this. Those who believe in God can never in a way be sure of him again. Once they have seen him in a stable, that is Jesus, they can never be sure where he will appear, or to what lengths he will go, or to what ludicrous depths of self-humiliation he will descend in his wild pursuit of man. If holiness and the awful power and majesty of God were present in this least auspicious of all events, this birth of a peasant's child, then there is no place or time so lowly and earthbound but that holiness can be present there too. And this means that we are never safe 
there's no place where we can hide from God, no place where we are safe from his power to break into and recreate the human heart, because it is just where he seems most helpless that he is most strong, and just where we least expect him that he comes most fully. Your third point, Jesus was the foretold Messiah the people needed, but not the one they wanted. You know, if you were a Jew living in Palestine in the first century, you would have been the recipient of so, much, so many stories, so many prophecies, so much scripture about this coming Messiah, about this person who was going to be raised up to save his people. Now, we can't fault the Jews too much on this. Messiah means the anointed one. And if you were a Jew living in the first century, you would know that there are two classes of people who are anointed. Kings were anointed at their so-called coronation. When they were declared king, there was an anointing ceremony that happened. And the other class of people were priests. So for them, when they hear Messiah, that the one is coming is the anointed one, they immediately have these two fixed categories upon which they think, all right, our Messiah, whoever he is, wherever he's going to come from, is either going to be a king or a priest. And so not surprisingly, what they attributed to the Messiah were things like military might and religious authority. The salvation that they envisioned the Messiah accomplishing for them was not the salvation that Jesus actually brought. At the point of Jesus' ministry, they had been under Roman occupation for almost 100 years. They had no religious power. They were given some freedoms to exercise religion in the way they wanted. They had no political autonomy, very little political authority, and so for them, when they hear salvation and that this figure is coming who is going to save them, the greatest salvation that they could envision was a liberation from Rome. And yet we understand that their version of the Messiah was bringing them a liberation which was far smaller than the real Messiah wanted to bring, which was liberation from death itself. And they couldn't see it. They couldn't see that this Jesus from Nazareth, because he didn't fit into either category of Messiah, nothing he did in his mission to rescue mankind looked like it was befitting for a king or a priest. He was a king without a castle, a priest without a temple, who instead of exercising his kingly right to be served by others, he became the ultimate servant to others. And instead of administering the sacrifice on behalf of the people, he himself became the sacrifice for all people. Back to that conversation with my, my junior high students years ago. We talked about how they would come on the scene, where they would come on the scene, and then I asked them, well, if you had to have people help you in your mission, who would you enlist? Who would be the people that you would go to and say, I want you on my team? And not surprisingly, in line with their previous answer, well, 
We need finances, we need capital, let's get Bill Gates. Well, gosh, we need infrastructure, Facebook's got that, let's get Zuckerberg on our team. We need to make this thing popular, so let's get some celebrities who can champion our cause. And yet, if you look back at John 1.14 again, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we saw his glory, glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. You look at who Jesus called to himself. A bunch of nobodies. A bunch of unassuming JV Jews. And yet you read John 1, and you see that Jesus' method was to dwell among us. It's a wonderful word, skinao. John is the only writer in the New Testament who uses this verb. It literally means to reside, to tent, to encamp. The method by which Jesus was going to achieve his purpose on earth was to dwell with us. Our Matthew 1 text says this, She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. That's what he's going to accomplish. Let's keep going. Verse 22, now all this took place to fulfill what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall be with child and shall bear a son, and they will call his name Emmanuel, which is translated God with us. What he comes to do, Matthew 21, is accomplished through the means of Matthew 1.23. He is going to save the people from their sins by being with us by being one of us. And this is the argument that the author of Hebrews is making for the most part of chapter 2 in the book of Hebrews. He is explaining in no uncertain terms the fullness of Jesus identifying with us in our humanity, in our flesh. Hebrews 2, 14 to 17 says this, Therefore, since the children share in flesh and blood, he, Jesus himself, likewise partook of the same. A little further down, verse 17 says, he had to be made like his brethren in some things. No. In all things, he was made like his brethren. In every possible way, Jesus experienced the fullness of our humanity. Why? Underlined here, the end of verse 14, that through death, he might render powerless him who had the power of death, that is, the devil, and might free those who through fear of death were subject to slavery all their lives. A little further down. Why did he have to be made like us in all things? So that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. Jesus had to be made exactly like us in all things so that he would be a fitting sacrifice on our behalf, for the sins of the people. We are the people. For your sin, for my sin, for those who would trust in him. And, and as we're in this Christmas season, or we feel like maybe we're entering in this Christmas season, it's easy for us to just get so focused on the events that took place in Bethlehem. Right? We'll talk about 
you know, these, these Advent candles, prophecy, Bethlehem, shepherds, angels. It's easy for us to get excited about the holly and the mistletoe and the peppermint jojos and, you know, you name it. Reality for us as Christians, Christmas derives its ultimate meaning from what happens in Good Friday. And there's nothing good about Good Friday apart from Easter Sunday. Christmas for us isn't just a celebration of the birth of Jesus in Bethlehem, but it's a celebration of, yes, his incarnation, but also his death and his resurrection. Christmas for a Christian is ultimately a celebration of our liberation from sin and our reconciliation to a holy God, which was accomplished through the death and life of Jesus. And I, I get to speak occasionally. Uh, I, I serve with the navigators over on the UC Davis campus. I get to speak there. Sometimes I get to speak here, maybe other churches. But I'm just going to tip my hand really clearly here. I, I want us to believe this. I want you to believe that Jesus came to die for your sins. I want you to believe that Jesus rose from the dead on your behalf. And the Bible says that if you trust him, if you believe in him, if you don't just celebrate him as savior, but you obey him in this life as Lord, the Bible says that hope and joy and meaning and gladness and fullness will be yours in an intractable way, in a way you can never possibly lose. And so for us, as we celebrate this Advent series, as we're putting uh, Jesus both back into Christmas and Christ back into our Christianity, I want you to consider something. Don't overlook those things in your life that you have labeled as insignificant. Right? Those things that, as my friend Rebecca mentioned earlier this week, those things that don't feel or look triumphant. God is in the details. For history, God has not often used those things that are flashy and bright and demand our attention. Oftentimes, he is working out his purposes in places like Bethlehem and people who are conflicted and scared and puzzled and terrified like Mary and Joseph. And God has put you in a place, and maybe... You live here in Davis and you think, well, there's nothing special about this place, you know. Or maybe you live like me up in Woodland. Or maybe you're from Winters. Or Knight's Landing or Esparto. Or... God has you there for a reason. He is working out beautiful things in your midst. And I just pray this season that we have eyes to see. Next week, my best friend, Kevin, is going to be up here speaking on the shepherds. And their experience of hearing good news and how they responded. You know, despite being separated by about six miles in about 33 years, I think the invitation of Pontius Pilate to those Jews who wanted to crucify Jesus is just as fitting at the end of his life as it is for the beginning. Behold your king. I mean, what is Christianity apart from that? Beholding Jesus, 
apart from anything else. And the question I have for us is, will we? Even in this Christmas season, will that be enough for us? Or do we want something more? Because beholding him, is that sufficient for us? Is that sufficient for you? I think it should be. I want it to be for me. The band's going to come back up here in just a minute, and uh, I'm going to pray. Jesus. He's the best. If we don't have him, we don't have much. And if you're a visitor here, or maybe you wouldn't identify as a Christian, I, I hope you might see Christmas in a new way. Maybe as you're singing some of these songs, they'll start to come together for you, as, as they did for me throughout my teen years. And I might realize that the Jesus I thought I knew and the Jesus who actually is aren't always the same person. Let me pray for us. Lord, thanks for your faithfulness. Thanks for Christmas. Thanks for sending Jesus to be with us, to be one of us fully, to be for us completely. Lord, thanks that for those of us who have put our trust in you, for those of us who our greatest delight is to simply behold you. We realize we, we didn't deserve it. We can't point to our best efforts and our, our talents and our skills that made us fit to see you as king, Lord, but you've given us faith, and for that we're eternally grateful. Lord, help us to worship appropriately now, even as we cast our eyes upon you, the author and perfecter of our faith. We pray in your name. Amen.